Oregon Behavior Consultation is a state-approved behavior consultation company in Oregon. Nate Sheets is not a therapist, and you should always check with your child's therapist or team before implementing any suggestions or ideas that you get from this podcast. Everyone is different, and so not all suggestions will work or be appropriate for everyone. Welcome to It's a Brain Thing, a podcast where we explore the various aspects of life for people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and the people who support them. We're broadcasting from Salem, Oregon, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jill Snell. Hi, Jill. Hi. So um, today we're going to be talking about anxiety. And while, of course, our podcast focuses on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, FASDs, um, a lot of what we're going to be talking about will apply to most kids with you know, anxiety issues, regardless of if they have a disability or not. Um, And before we get started in our conversation, we also wanted to mention that um, here in Oregon, our whole state, it feels like is burning right now. So um, if you're an Oregonian, and you're in one of those areas that the fire is out of control, um, or if you're in a city that is filled with smoke, right now it's bad in Portland and Eugene, we're kind of, we're doing okay here, but it's pretty bad here too. Um, our thoughts are with everybody, so um, stay safe, and we'll get started. So, anxiety, Jill, is that a, a common thing that you're experiencing in your everyday life with your daughter? With my daughter and myself as yeah. a caregiver, but absolutely, I think that's the number one driving, that's oh. a driving force behind a lot of my daughter's big feelings. Yeah, and, you know, both you and I, we, we can have anxiety symptoms at times just in our own lives, so... Um, for me, anxiety is a pretty complicated emotion. I would say that for myself, I never even really understood what anxiety was until my early 20s. Um, I just didn't have, you know, I, I, either my development or I just didn't have the understanding. And so I often think about, you know, for my clients who experience anxiety but don't have those words, it's going to create behaviors and other situations that may not appear to be anxiety. So can you tell us, maybe for your daughter, how do you see anxiety? Does it always look like she's worried about something? No, and I think that that's a really great point of about when you learned what anxiety looked like when you were in your 20s. For a nine-year-old, um, it's it's coming out in all different forms. And I, too, didn't learn about what real anxiety was and how it manifests in people until um, my 20s as well. So being able to teach this to our kiddos at a younger age is really going to empower them. Um for our daughter and her anxiety, it, it comes out um, and it looks like anger. It looks like perseveration or sticky brain, we call it in our house. Um, it looks like a really big body or a tense body um, that impacts her self-regulation. It looks like procrastination. It looks like an unwillingness to help or complete um, projects or plans. Mm. So it's really easy for these labels to be thrown out there with these kiddos for anxiety. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that so many things impact anxiety and and anxiety can have that impact right back on them. So, for example, um, if you don't have certain executive functioning skills or they're not developed, so thinking abstractly, so being able to clearly visualize and manipulate information in your head, 
if you don't have that ability, oftentimes the response is going to be anxiety because then you're in a situation where you need that skill to kind of understand what's going on. You don't have the skill and thus your anxiety gets raised. But also likewise, if you're in the middle, even if you have that skill, but you're having anxiety issues, anxiety will lower the skill. So it goes back and forth. Sensory is another example where being anxious, if you have some significant sensory issues, will lower your brain's ability to process sensory information. But then also, even if you're doing well, but you begin to have sensory issues for whatever other reason, commonly the response is either overstimulation or anxiety or both. And so it's, it's really not always clear. And so it's really important as we're, as we're seeing behaviors, um, you know, we see procrastination, the traditional label for that is laziness, right? Or um, we see anger and society interprets somebody as having a bad temper, but maybe one of the issues here is anxiety. So then the question is, what is anxiety? You know, the way I describe anxiety is that it's both an emotion and it's a response. And it's complicated and unique, I think, among a lot of the other emotions, but your brain is having a response as if you're in danger. And when we say anxiety in this podcast, for some kids, you know, of parents that are listening, that might mean just the anxiety symptoms. But for many, it means their mental health disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, for example. Anxiety is also a part of post-traumatic stress disorder. So sometimes it is mental health related. Sometimes um, it's not addressed in mental health, but it's all kind of the same thing. It's these symptoms that can manifest in various ways. So I think exactly what you're talking about is that fight or flight feeling that we can feel. And in one of the best uh, child development books I've ever read in my life, it's called The Whole Brain Child by Dr. Dan Siegel. He represents that fight or flight, allowing access to our upper brain, that higher level of thinking, the executive functioning, as if when we get to that fight or flight moment, that anxiety is really a baby gate, not allowing us to walk up the stairs to our higher level of functioning. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good visual of what happens in our brain as to why we can't access our executive functioning is that the anxiety acts as a baby gate, blocking access literally to that higher level of thinking. And even when, and this is really the difference between maybe adults like me and you having anxiety and kids or kids with developmental disabilities is that even with the executive functioning in place, because we have pretty good executive functioning skills, because anxiety is a response, it can help. The, the executive functioning can help. So me and you, at the very least, can tell ourselves and know that we're not lying to ourselves that you know it's going to be okay, mm-hmm. or what I'm feeling now isn't real, it's just my brain. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really necessarily help on every level that we would want it to. It's not the magic you know, thing that you're going to say that stops the anxiety, but it can help us on an intellectual level. But for our kids, they may not have the ability to really think, to clearly think that through or to plan and forecast and to know that everything's going to be okay. And that only contributes even more to the anxiety. Absolutely. And I think also if, you know, going back to the analogy of the baby gate, I think, you know, when we run into that as an adult, and like you said, when we can be aware of what we're feeling and name it to tame it, we can walk around the gate, we can pull the gate back a little bit to kind of squeeze forward. And that's how we can really edge our ways through that, those, those big feelings. But for kiddos, I think hitting that wall over and over again, or hitting that baby gate over and over again, that can create such secondary issues to the anxiety and and self-shame and um, feelings of sadness and so then the question is, you know, what can we do about it? So the first of all, anxiety should definitely be addressed. Anxiety symptoms or anxiety should be addressed by a mental health professional. 
you might want to look into medications depending on your situation um, or have some kind of therapeutic techniques. But we know that for FASD, a lot of therapy will not necessarily um, work unless you have a really good therapist who can adjust things on a cognitive skill level. And when I, I call that access to our daughter's brain. So we can throw all the tools and all the amazing things that Nate's taught us um, at her. But if we don't have access to the brain, if that baby gate is blocking our access to her higher level of thinking, there's no way to actually practice those therapeutic skills and those right. tools. Right. And I think once you find that moment where that anxiety is lifted, that's when like true right. developmental change can happen. Because you can make a plan. And that's, yes. re- that's really related to, you know, we always talk about plans for various behaviors, but we, whenever we're making a plan, we have to do it at a time when the person's receptive. So yeah. This can all be seen in all of these different areas. So definitely consult a mental health professional, but then our everyday interventions can also help prevent anxiety. So especially the structure piece, if our kids know what to expect, that will hopefully have not only a decrease in their anxiety, but just an ability to use their other executive functioning skills. So if the day is not laid out for me in a clear way, I have to constantly be using my executive functioning to kind of figure it out and regulate myself calmly. But if it's either the same or I've talked about it and it's visualized, for example, that provides that cognitive support that we talk about. And so that will still allow me to go through my day, hopefully with less anxiety. And everybody's different, even with pre-planning like a schedule, you might still see some anxiety because again, anxiety is a response and sometimes it's chemically based, which is why it's helpful to have a mental health professional involved. Um, But make things predictable. That's the short way of saying all that make things predictable and hopefully some of that anxiety will go down. Um, With, with our daughter, um, what the difference that I noticed between our typical developing six-year-old and our FASD brain nine-year-old is that, our six-year-old is starting to name it to tame it. She's starting to recognize that what she's feeling isn't right. The behaviors that she's having are a little bit askew. And she starts to make these really adorable baby changes to do something different or try something try something different. And with our nine-year-old, she, um, in her FASD brain, she genuinely doesn't have that ability. And so I feel like I am, that's my greatest support I have for her is that I'm that higher level of thinking when hers is shut down. So when she has a behavior, let's say anger at our house and it's exploding and she's wanting to hit and she's wanting to yell and scream or pound her fists or whatever's happening that's really, really big and really, really intense. What I'm doing while she's feeling those feelings, because there's no way I can access her brain and ask her to calm down in those moments there's zero way we get her to a safe spot. She's feeling her feelings. And I'm rocking through my brain thinking, what is going on? I start with the biological things. Is she hungry? Is she tired? Is she thirsty? Mm-hmm. And when I can't find something biologically wrong, then I think about her other parts of her life that could be a little bit askew, that could be creating that anxiety for her. And that's how I'm able to kind of see that behavior as a symptom um, of anxiety because it's nine times out of 10, a lot of her big behaviors and her big problems that she's feeling and and facing um, are driven by that anxiety. And us being the executive functioning for our children when they are in that fight or flight state, I think is critical for them to be able to 
um, calm their little bodies and their little brains down to then be able to access them. Yeah. And, and we can, we can be that, we can prompt them to think about that, not only in the moment, but even proactively. So when they're doing well, just saying, Hey, let's, let's, let's have, let's just sit here and feel this for a moment. Mm. This is what doing well is like. I can tell you're doing well because you know, you're being nice to your siblings or you've been saying please and thank you more and you show them how you know they're doing well because we also want them to be able to recognize that. So that way when they're not doing well, it's very clear. And then, you know, working on those coping skills. And and anxiety coping skills tend to be um, imperfect, you know, for anybody because they can help you kind of get to a place where you're going to be able to write out the anxiety or maybe it will shorten the anxiety um, sometimes you can be proactive to prevent anxiety, but sometimes the answer is going to be either when we've tried things that are not working or it's just an intense situation is we're going to be sitting there with our kids just waiting for this particular wave of anxiety to kind of move and somehow get them back on their schedule or in their routine. Um, so there really are not necessarily any clear answers for all of this and everybody's different but i think the most powerful thing that we've been saying is to name it to tame it and that we have to teach not only our kiddos but ourselves what our anxiety looks like and i think that we to be the best advocate for our children and the best guides for our children we really have to look within ourselves and to identify what feeling good does feel for us and what anxiety does feel for us and Mm -hmm. for me i know anxiety comes out in um, agitation it comes out in anger. It comes out in um, not wanting to do anything but look at my phone for an hour. It, avoidance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I feel sometimes I have glue on my feet. And no matter how bad I want to leave the house or how bad I want to start an art project, the glue just won't let go. And the, identifying those sources for me and what, what anxiety feels like to me allows me to talk myself through it and be aware of it so that I can make – these changes. But if we don't do that for ourselves, if we don't start identifying what anxiety looks like to ourselves, then we cannot be a a teacher for our children. We have to be vulnerable in that state. And that that makes me think also of something that's really important is because, I mean, many of the parents that I work with have anxiety issues. You know, if you read the boards on Facebook, you know, a lot of people are dealing with anxiety. Maybe it has to do with the stress of you know, the kiddos that they're supporting and also anxiety may have nothing to do with that. They might just be an anxious person. That's how my situation is. So the the problem is, is when you have an anxious caregiver or parent and an anxious kiddo, then that anxiety can very easily create really intense situations. And for anxiety, like, if because I've had depression and when I come across somebody with depression, my experience with that really helps me to empathize and kind of do what they need to do. But for me anyway, anxiety does not work that way. I can know on an intellectual level that that person is being anxious. I can know that I'm anxious, but that doesn't really help with the empathy. We can still set each other off. Um, And so that can be an interesting interaction of its own. So then when you're dealing with stressed out parents who maybe have more than one kid, they have a bunch of things they're trying to do, trying to get from point A to point B, and then they have a kiddo with various challenging behaviors who might need constant supervision or make constant demands, that can burn people out and just make the anxiety worse and worse and worse. So, you know, when we talk about the schedules or sensory interventions using those, the more proactive we can be, the better, because we're trying to avoid it. Once the anxiety has started, things get a lot more chaotic and unclear as to how we can proceed. So proactive is the name of the game. With 
with um, our oldest, she's um, extraordinarily social. She wants to connect with every Tom, Dick, and Harry she meets on the street. I am the polar opposite. I get really, really anxious around people. I like to be a hermit crab, and I feel safest when I'm in my home away from humans other than my close-knit of, of humans. And uh, so whenever we're out and about, she's always asking me to – because she wants to be social so bad, but she too has a bit of an anxiety about approaching people. How do I do this? How do I engage? And I've always been the, been there for her to help her learning those skills and how to be appropriate with our social interactions and how do we connect with people – so now at nine, she's having me do that for her um, on an entirely new level where she's forcing me or asking me obsessively to go up to a certain person that she likes the shoes of at the grocery store because she wants so badly to go and tell this person that she loves their shoes. My anxiety skyrockets and I <laughs> all I want to do is like literally leave the grocery store and go home because and start crying because I don't want to approach this person at all. And I know right. Quinny is going to get more stuck on it the more I say no. So after going through a few of these episodes with her, I sat her down before we go to the grocery store, before we go out into public. And I'll be like, remember, I get really anxious talking to people and I don't want to go and meet all these new people. I totally support if you want to and I'll be there with you, but I won't do the talking. You're going to have to do the talking because it makes me feel yucky inside. And she, she acknowledges it. We have that commitment with each other. We go to the store, the same damn thing happens where she's wanting to get, go up to this person and find out about their shoes. So in those moments, I realized that the only way out of that, besides me running away like a four-year-old back to the car and without her having a meltdown at the store, is to ask her to be my partner. Because just like Nate was saying, it's hard to empathize when you're in that fight or flight moment. And both she and I are in fight or flight in the grocery store at the same time. So what we do is I'll say work with me. I'm feeling those big feelings. What are you feeling? She'll talk about her big feelings and how important it is about that shoe. And I'll talk about how nervous I get talking to new people. And as we're naming what we're feeling in those moments, all of a sudden we have access to each other and we can actually talk about our plan. Mm -hmm. So that's how she and I have overcome a huge <laughs> anxiety obstacle between the two of us because I, I know how important it is for her to connect. I know how important it is for me to uh, not connect so we had to kind of come up with a compromise that was healthy for both of us and um sometimes we go up to people and ask about their shoes and sometimes she's okay about not so um yeah so finding that way to communicate with your child and to talk each other down when you're both in anxiety mess holes with each other i think is really powerful and it also teaches your children and yourself how to be okay not being okay in that really scary anxiety spot mm -hmm. yeah so that's a really good strategy about, you know, trying to connect with her and your feelings. Um, but something else we, we might want to consider, because this will be individualized. So we know your daughter can handle this in certain situations, which, of course, you as her mom can feel out. But if there is significant anxiety going on, maybe we're escalated as well. Maybe we're melting down. Um, that kind of conversation may not necessarily be so helpful. For sure. Because... In that moment, what we call receptive communication, being able to process as well as executive functioning are all out the window. And so that's what we always talk about making plans ahead of time. So if you have a plan with your kiddo or client about what they can do when they're anxious, then you don't have to do a lot of that talking necessarily, or you can just remind them, hey, we're about to have this conversation and maybe that can get them to the point where they can have that, the more verbal conversation. 
but you to just prompt them of hey we've talked about it and now we're gonna get this plan going we have a lot of videos about it on the youtube channel um, but just driving you know that point about how we can plan for these situations ahead of time which allows us to then in the moment do as little talking as possible which is important mm -hmm. let them think let them gain their cognitive skills and then get to a point where they can say okay here's what i need now so absolutely yeah. can you give an example of what one of those plans might look like well uh, we're hopefully going to be making a video about this in the future and this is not just related to anxiety but it's just being mindful in general because a lot of the behaviors that we see have to do with impulse control or just not processing and so when you can't process situations or speech um, all these behaviors can result so what we want to do is come up with a signal with our kid about you know, just getting them to stop what they're doing in any particular situation and just thinking. And that might involve thinking about how they're interacting with others, thinking about if they're engaging in behavior that they, maybe they shouldn't be doing, um, thinking about personal space, thinking about, you know, even things that don't necessarily have to do with intense behavior, just and also thinking about how things are going when they're going well. Mm -hmm. So then you can come up with a signal and we're going to be making a video about this, but whenever you give them the signal and you can practice the signal, everybody knows how much we're about practicing here, then that signal that they've agreed to and that you've practiced, they know it means just stop and think. You're not in trouble. It's really important. They understand this is not always going to be a correction. We just want you to stop and think about how things are going. And this will allow you to address anxiety or a social issue or a behavioral issue. And then you also can prompt them when they're doing well. So maybe they're, you know, sitting watching TV with their siblings and they're doing so appropriately. And you give them the signal and they stop and think. And then they look at you and you can flash them the thumbs up sign. You're saying, no, you're doing great. Because we don't want it to be about just negative behaviors. We want them to just learn this idea of being mindful and then also having these prompts and maybe they'll eventually improve their own ability to do it on their own. So how that's related to anxiety is if we have this system already in place that we've practiced, then my kiddo's having an anxiety response to something, I can give them the signals and hopefully that will get them to a point where they can stop and think and either say to themselves, I'm anxious right now, so I need to do a coping skill, or at least get them to, get them to the point where they they will seek you for some kind of help, even if they don't know if it's anxiety, but they know, okay, I, I need to listen to my mom right now or something like that. So that's how it would hopefully practically play out for people. I love it. That's such a good example, Nate. At our house, we say take a beat. Mm -hmm. That take a beat is just a trigger, and I say it to myself all the time, or I'll say to my kids, I'm taking a beat, which just means... Yeah hang in there you know like let's just stop everything let's breathe let's just be in this moment yeah so I, but i love that example that's huge yeah huge and then for caregivers and parents it's important that you address your anxiety whether it's related to you know working with somebody with fasd or if it's unrelated and that's not always easy for everybody so there's a lot of people with mental health issues who are providing support for kids and adults with fasd who also have mental health issues, but they're not necessarily handling it. And that's gonna manifest in a lot of probably really unhealthy ways. But also, not everybody has access to mental health therapy or a doctor who can you know, assess whether medication is working. So even things that we can do for our anxiety that don't require healthcare, like making sure that you get time every day where it's just you. And a lot of people have no clue how they can make that happen, but just trying to figure it out. 
um, having your own coping strategies like you strategies like you talked about in the moment um, saying take a beat that would be a good way to have something ready to go and locked and loaded that you can use um, but somehow you have to address it you can't have that mentality of I'm just gonna power my way through it because that will lead to burnout and I see I started off in foster care I have seen many failed adoptions many failed foster placements because of anxiety and ongoing mental health issues so you can't say to yourself my love is going to get for my kid is going to get me through this. Mm-hmm. It, I understand the feeling and the, the reason behind that, but it is not a practical strategy for handling stress or anxiety. So, and I think identifying too, that there's no shame in having no. anxiety. I think some of, some of the most successful people out there are driven by anxiety and Absolutely. it's when it starts interfering with our interpersonal relationships that anxiety actually becomes detrimental, but it's okay to have anxiety and it's okay to, um, allow yourself to be vulnerable and to know that there's other people out there. And for me, I was most comfortable when I started being honest about my anxiety and when I started um, asking other people about their anxiety and finding friends that are willing to be in that vulnerable space with me. Um, So find friends and find support groups out there that people are willing to name it um, in a truthful and and healthful light. It's incredibly powerful there's definitely a stigma and i'm sure even you know some people listening who are hearing this advice would be like i really can't i have no way i could tell anybody about this because of that stigma of mental health and this idea that especially for anxiety in my opinion people are like you just need to be quiet and deal with it right don't make it other people's problem but that's that's not what seeking support is it's not about making it other people's problem it's not about getting attention it's about identifying what's happening in your brain and then hopefully getting some support on how you can manage it, both proactively and reactively. I think it makes it feel less big. It makes it feel yeah. a lot less big when it's normalized. Yeah. For sure. So good. You guys, you're fabulous. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that's a good kind of intro to anxiety. Obviously, in future podcasts, we're going to keep on mentioning it. If anybody has any questions that they want to submit to us, you can do so on our Facebook page, Um And you can ask us either more about anxiety or asking about strategies or ask about other topics completely. So we're going to hopefully get a kind of question and answer session going. um, And we're going to hopefully answer the questions both here on the podcast as well as on Facebook video. So that will be a new thing coming up. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and say goodbye to everybody. My name is Nate Sheets. Thank you very much, Jill. You're welcome. And have a great week, everybody. 